guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And this is No Limits, a Mitrap podcast. So how you doing today, Mike? Dude, I'm good. I fired up my pizza oven last night, so I had some leftover pizza all day today. I'm in oh, a good that's mood. The best. <laughs> that's that's good. How about you? What's going on? Yeah, nothing. We carved a pumpkin tonight. That was pretty fun. That came out good. Uh, yeah, thanks. I'll share it on my Instagram for people to see. Nice. It was, uh, yeah, it's getting cold here, so I think we're supposed to have snow tomorrow, so that's that's kind of sad. Yeah, that's it's crazy that that, that time of year is coming this quickly. Wah, 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 but yeah. my golf course officially closed. Oh, uh, whatever are you going to do? <laughs> I got one last round in yesterday. I was oh so happy. Oh, my goodness. It, it was like 55 degrees. My buddy texted me. It was like, let's go. <laughs> So we got to get in. it in. You got to get it in. You got it in. Nice. So nice. All right. I think I officially I played 45 rounds this year. Jesus. Nine not all, nine holes, right? Not all 18. Okay. Probably half of half of them are 18, half of them are 9. It's a lot of golf. Way too much. The 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 quality of golf it peaked and then it yeah. And then it declined. Yeah, I know about that. I I play better when I'm coming off a rest. Like I haven't played in 3 or 4 weeks. I don't know. I, I just play better. And then if I've been playing a couple of times in a row, I trail off. Maybe it gets in your head. I don't know. It No, I think people like, you know, you just start thinking about it. You think too much. Yeah. Think too much. Yeah. yeah. So, Well, something Anyways. I thought about a lot is this podcast. Me too. <laughs> I've been thinking about, I've been reading um, Executive Power. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this one. So Yeah. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be reading and reviewing Executive Power, but Today, we are bringing to you our author series with a special guest, Mike Trott, author of The Protected. Before we get there, you know, this month is November. Veterans Day is coming. And I don't know about you, Chris, but I was excited that we released our special announcement just a few days ago about how we're going to give back. Yeah. You know, Veterans Day is rolled around. We decided when we started this podcast we were going to pick a foundation to uh, to donate to we picked the prostate cancer foundation we hope you uh, enjoy the interview with rebecca that we dropped uh, this weekend if you haven't listened to it i encourage you to go listen to it it was very informative the work that they do um, is great to help um, not only end prostate cancer but also their partnership with the va bringing cutting-edge treatment you know to veterans was really great it was really to just talk to her and learn more about that so um, you know, we, we mentioned it yesterday, we'll mention it again here, but, you know, we're going to donate all of our Patreon funds um, for the next two months to the PCF, hopefully, you know, help end, help fund the research to end prostate cancer. So, Yep, really excited. So if you haven't checked out that special announcement episode, please go do so, and then you can visit our website, mitchrappod.com, look for the orange support us on Patreon button. And if you've been on the fence, not sure if you want to sign up and help out, this is the time because 100% of two months worth of your pledges will be donated to the cause. And we'll send you some sweet Mitrap Pod stickers and a couple bookmarks. And speaking of patrons, it's time for our October book giveaway. Yay. All right. (laughs) So I've got all the names of any patron who signed up and was with us. Uh, even beforehand, stick to, uh, stuck with us through October. And I've got them in the Wheel of Names website. Shall I spin that wheel? 
Spin it. Here we go. Drum roll, please. Hey, it's good friend of the podcast, Dawn. It is Dawn. Sweet. Nice. Yes. I'm excited about that one. It was a real All treat right, Dawn. to talk to her. What was that? A couple yes. of months ago now? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, a month ago. Yes. Well, we have to do another patron hangout, you know, so. Yeah, we do. Maybe we'll see who signs up in November. We'll do a little celebration, get all our patrons together on a quick video chat to uh, talk about rap. Spitball about rap. Yeah. Rap on rap, baby. (laughs) Well, Don, we'll be reaching out to you and you'll get to pick a signed copy by Vince Flynn of Executive Power, Extreme Measures, Pursuit of Honor, Act of Treason, or Protect and Defend. And if you'd like, also a copy of The Survivor by Kyle Mills. So any one of those that you want, you can pick, and we will send it out. Thank you for being a patron. Right. All right. That's great. All right. Well, let's get to the interview with Mike. And as you might have heard uh, last episode, he wrote a book called The Protected. So we're getting into a little bit of nonfiction where he talks about his decades worth of experience in the world of executive protections. And his primary role was protecting the DCI. So he talks a little bit about his experiences in the field. Now, Chris, one thing the listeners are going to hear in the interview is this story. Can you tell me which scene it makes you think of? It's not a perfect one-to-one analogy, but Mike shared in West Berlin um, in in the 70s and 80s, and he had a protectee. And the local police raided a home of suspected extremists in the Red Army faction and found a hit list, and his protectee was on the hit list, along with the name of a very high-profile German banker named Alfred Herrhausen, or Herrhausen. And this German banker was on the hit list. He was an advisor to the chancellor. He was on the management board of Deutsche Bank, um, so he was funding some high-level political things. And um, the Red Army faction assassinated him with an IED and a a roadside bomb. And Mike was like, whoa, this job is for real now because his protectee was also on the same list. And they were kind of blindsided. Yeah. What does it make you think a German banker, you know, involved in political dealings? Uh, German banker assassinations got to be the third option. Count Hagemiller. Count Hagemiller. There it is. There it is. He then told me about this one. Uh, He was recounting a story he wasn't exactly involved in, but it involved a satchel bomb on a bicycle. And what blew my mind was he said why it was important in the world of protection was the bicycle was able to get inside the motorcade and deliberately pass the first car. Well, it was going past the first car because he knew the target was in one of the later cars in the motorcade. On a bicycle, he was able to go right up to the second car, throw a satchel on top of the car, or or at least detonate it in the location of the vehicle, and I'm thinking of what scene? Oh, that's terminal limits with with uh, with you know who who do they bomb? Um, the the senator from is it Minnesota where the O'Rourke's were yeah, from? This... Oh, why am I blanking? I forget the name. name. Anyways, I, yeah, I can't remember the name. But he was good friends Eric with Shane Olson. Olson. Olson, Senator Olson, Senator there Olson. Yep. And am I right? They left the restaurant where Seamus and Michael had lunch with him. Mm -hmm. They turn the corner and they see his car going by. And a motorcycle. And a motorcycle comes up. Yep. Drops a satchel right there on the roof and hit the target. 
Well, yeah, anyway, Mike uh, shared with me a lot about stories such as that he's been through and things to look out for uh, when he's designing a protection detail. And most importantly, he's a Mitch Rapp fan. Nice. So we talk a little bit about his favorite books. All right. Well, I hope you enjoy this episode in our author series. All right. Today, we welcome a special guest. Michael Trott is the author of The Protected, an informative and strategic view inside the world of executive protection. The book has been praised by many experts inside the world of security, intelligence, and law enforcement, including George Tenet, former director of the CIA, who claimed, in The Protected, Mike provides valuable insights and intelligent perspectives into the world of personal protection. So Michael, thanks for joining us today and coming on Mitch Rapp Podcast. Absolutely, Mike. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Great, great. So first and most important question, have you read any of the Vince Flynn novels? You are familiar with our operator, Mitch Rapp, no? I don't think you can be in this industry and not be familiar with, with Rapp. It's not. It's probably, probably not possible. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Separation of Power and American Assassins are two books that I can remember uh, the most. Uh, but uh, as I referenced before, I I read a lot on planes, so it's uh, not it's not something I have a lot of free time to do these days. Uh, but definitely very familiar with the uh, character for sure. Sure. All right. Well, can you start telling us about your career and how you came to be one of the most the foremost professionals in the world in the field of executive protection? How did that become your domain? Well, first of all, I appreciate that uh, <laughs> that comment. Uh, it is a very crowded field. I'm, I'm very respectful of all those who serve in this particular industry. Um, you know, there's thousands that's, that's come before me, and there's thousands with me now, and thousands after. So, uh, but with that said, I, I kind of mentioned in the book that you sort of you come by this industry either by uh, Previous knowledge, maybe it's Secret Service or it's, it's a special agent with another organization. And you have your sights on it as a young kid, maybe, um, and you head in that direction. And then sometimes the, the profession chooses you. you. You find yourself in a situation where an opportunity exists or uh, maybe a mentor brings you into this organization or this particular skill. That's kind of what happened with me. Um, I had ever desired really to join the Army. Uh, had more of a mindset of, of special forces in the army. That's the direction I wanted to go. And ironically, I was going to join the service right out of high school with four or five good friends on a buddy program. And when I went to the recruiter to sign up, I was the only one there. And uh, so my friends bailed out on me on that particular day. I remember calling my dad. I'm like, hey, you know, everybody bailed out on me. I think I'm going to go ahead and join uh, the army solo. And he was a former uh, Army guy himself. I served in the Korean War, and he always tried to convince me to go Navy or Air Force. So I took some time to think about it, and actually a couple years later, I joined the Air Force. But I wanted to do something still similar in the special ops world, um, and ended up going into the security uh, profession in the Air Force, um, and kind of continued down that path and served for about 10 years. And six of those years were in Germany. And I think the significant part of that aspect of that time period was serving during the before and after the Berlin Wall fell down. So, or knocked down, if you will. Um, so during that particular time period, uh, it was a very interesting time in history, for sure, in serving in, in Germany. 
but I got um, selected and ended up working executive protection, close protection for a, a high-profile general who was under threat of the Red Army faction, a terrorist organization at that time. So that would be my first opportunity to get involved in that particular area of protecting somebody else. Um, I was a special weapons um, instructor, special weapons and tactics instructor, uh, close protection specialist, a driver, and just kind of getting into those special skills as a 24, 25-year-old young, young airman, if you will. Spent a lot of time at the Army training, uh, sort of rounding out your skill sets. And then uh, after 10 years, I had a, an Air Force mentor who was a, a senior officer uh, who also worked for the CIA at a particular time, as well as the DIA. And he took me under his wing, and when I got to that 10-year point, he was like, you got to make a decision if you're going to continue in the military towards retirement, but if you're not, let's talk about the intelligence organization. So uh, he kind of steered me that path, and as I jokingly you know, make a comment to other individuals, he set me up with a coffee, had a coffee with an individual uh, who was sort of a recruiter for the CIA, and next thing you know, nine, 11, 11 months later, I'm, I'm working for the CIA. So. can only imagine what that time period was like, just getting your feet wet in the intelligence business but uh your experience in all those other branches must have helped so thank you for your service in all these different capacities absolutely so thinking more about the actual skills that are required in the field of protection can you tell us what is the most valuable asset for someone to bring to the table because we have a misconception i believe a lot of lay people you know not involved in the field or in the military based on media so can you tell us what the real skill sets are that are required and how maybe it doesn't or does match up with what you see in popular media from movies and Hollywood? And do they get it wrong <laughs> is what I'm wondering. You know, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. I, I think what I can appreciate with the, you know, the Mitch Rapp series is the character plays a lot on his sort of his mental fortitude, his ability to think quickly on his feet and have a lot of tools in the toolbox, as we say. Um, you know, close protection is not all guns. It's not all knife fighting. It's not all, you know, close combat. Um, you know, it's a lot of finesse. It's a, not, it's a lot about knowing and sort of being able to have that sixth sense, I think. Um, if you're truly in the business of close protection in high threat areas or an individual who has a substantial threat, um, it's for real. There's no games with that. Um, you know, just recently, the, the uh, chief of police in Mexico City was, a, was basically an attempted assassination on him. And as it appears, at least based on the reports so far, the two close protection agents that were assigned to him uh, literally saved his life. They died in the process, but they sort of jumped over the seats and covered him with their body uh, as the penetration of the rounds of the armor protection you know, began to penetrate the vehicle. And... And these uh, rounds penetrated the officers, or the protection officers. So it is a serious business, depending on who you're protecting. So with that said, yes, there's a lot of training that goes into it, and I think sometimes the mis, you know, conception might be or perception is that we um, we have a lot of tools that uh, sometimes you read in the books that eh, it's a little far fetched. Uh, uh, some of the movies we see where you know whether it's one of the teams that are 
being shot at by, you know, 30, 40 people in rounds within 30, 40 yards and nobody gets hit. That's just not <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's, it's exciting maybe and it keeps the character alive longer, but it's just not realistic. Um, but with that said, um, a lot of training is important. So a lot of tools, you're, you're developing tools about um, what we call the concepts and principles of close protection, kind of where to, where to stand, where to be, where not to be. Uh, when we're escorting an individual um, prior to an individual going into a location, it's important to we call it in advance. We want to know, we want to take away all the mysteries of where, let's take the CIA director, since we're talking about sort of Mitch and uh, Stansfield and these old characters. Before these individuals go to a location, it might be a high risk. We want to, we want to take away all the mysteries. We want to own that area if and when we can. So, you take a, a methodical approach to the movements. Um, arrivals and departures are always our scariest times with executive protection uh, because those, those are areas we often don't get to control. You know, we don't like taking a principal out of a secure, safe environment and take them to a meeting at a hotel, as an example. We can't control that hotel uh, unless we're Secret Service and we have hundreds or thousands of agents and we can, we can own it. Uh, but if you're at the CIA or if you're at a high-profile family, you might have three or four or five or a dozen agents, but you don't have hundreds or thousands. So you have to, you have to be able to, to control that environment differently and then plan for the unexpected. Yeah. So, again, going back, a lot of training, a lot of training on skill sets that you do have to have, weapons training, uh, you know, self-defense training, because sometimes uh, we do have to – break, if you will, uh, in a particular situation and, and, and uh, take our principal to a safety situation or, or, or what we call a hard room or safe room. And that requires a choreographed movement, if we can. Um, driving is always a big element of what we do. Uh, I sort of started the industry as a driver in Germany. Uh, and ever since then, driving has always been something even as a senior agent uh, or a team leader, I had no problem getting behind the wheel and drive because I just I like to drive. I like to drive fast. Uh, there's something about that, and um, I think I'm pretty good at it. So that's a skill set that I've always enjoyed. If you have to get into a shootout, obviously you want good shooters, but if you have to get into a shootout, you probably screwed up somewhere before that happened. So, uh, you know, in the bigger operations, you have snipers and counter snipers. Uh, you have advanced teams. You have uh, surveillance uh, teams. You, you have a lot of components that go into protecting somebody. It just really depends on the level of protection and the mm -hmm. level of necessity. You know, the President of the United States is probably the highest level of uh, protection probably in the world. And, uh, you know, Secret Service, Secret Service does a... A good job of that even though they've had episodes in the past where somebody got the best of them um, so it keeps us on our toes so you mentioned a lot about controlling the environment and I think that's another thing that makes Mitch Rapp and the writing of Vince Flynn work is he excels when he can't control the environment you know he has that x factor but in a majority of the scenes there's more control than you'd think going on. You mentioned, you mentioned Thomas Stansfield and then the director who would take over after him, Irene Kennedy, he's always got that team of people who are controlling those variables best they can. And so rap can deal with what happens on a whim. He'll, he'll be on in the, on the ground, but then he also has that team behind him. Are most jobs on your average job, would you have 
a, a team, like you mentioned, of three to four people? Would it depend on if it's a high-level government protection versus an individual contract? Is there usually a team of, uh, of people working together on most protection details? It really depends on the individual um, and the circumstances. If it's a government official, for sure there's a team. If it's a, a very high net worth, high profile individual, uh, there's more than likely a team. Um, if, you know, we call them solo operators, there are still family members or maybe a CEO or executives that has maybe one close protection agent. Uh, that's not usually recommended. Um, sometimes we call a solo uh, EP operator a witness <laughs> because he, he, might, he might be able to see what happened uh, right before his principal was shot or something bad happened, but he may not be able to counter that by himself or herself. Um, but uh, so, yeah, it definitely varies. Uh, but for a large government detail, a large high profile family executive, you're going to have a team approach. Okay. And I mean, I guess it's true, at least from my knowledge and what I think your average person would think is the best team out there, the secret service, you know, particularly their presidential protection detail. Is that really the, the highest caliber of protection that you can see anywhere in the world? I know you mentioned that. Are they really uh, the highest it can go? They're probably going to be the pinnacle for many reasons. Um, their budget is incredible. Yeah. Uh, the, the ability to hire and train is phenomenal. Uh, their intelligence case study history is phenomenal. Um, the fact that the president really has total control of the secret service where they go. And if they can't, well, it's very rarely they can't, they make the decisions not to take him there. Yeah. Uh, so when you look at the numbers, you look at the capability, you look at the history, you look at the budget, the weapon systems, uh, the aircraft, the resources, it's hard to match something like the secret service. It's just hard. Now, if you're, now that's in terms of the program itself. But if you're looking at a low profile, what we consider low profile at the CIA, for example, I mean, a lot of our operations or a lot of our protected details are not around a high profile individual like the President of the United States. So if I can't bring in two or 300 agents, if I can't lock down an entire hotel, but I have to take a, a person under protection to the back streets of, you name the location, um, and protect him and maybe certain individuals he's meeting with because it's so critical, um, i got to be creative. Mm -hmm. And does the Secret Service do that well? Probably not. Yeah. They don't have to operate in that environment. So you have other teams and other organizations that train, have the resources, and they do that well. So it really, again, comes down to who you're protecting um, and what environment you're doing it in. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So while we're talking about uh, particularly government protection, as we're on that, a big theme in these books, besides just the, you know, badass, exciting things Mitch Rapp does out there to kill terrorists. Another theme is the corruption in Washington, you know, the <laughs> self-serving politicians, the ones who are secretly pulling the strings, you know, behind the public's eye and, you know, hiding things in the world of intelligence or security. Uh, protection does politics play a role or is it truly neutral in that you have a mission you have a job and 
or, or, or does politics play a role in some sort of, you know, contracts being cut or certain things not being given the amount of resources they deserve for purely political means? Um, does that get in the way? I think without a doubt. Uh, it, you know, it's hard to, to speak uh, specifically, but to get into general, you could probably pull out scenarios like Benghazi. You know, did, did politics in any way play a role in the amount of protection that was provided for um, you know, for the ambassador and the, and the consulate there. Uh, you get 50 people in a room and 25 is going to say yes and 25 is going to say no. Um, now, in terms of protecting an individual, let's let's take the, the director as, as an example or some high-level official. No, politics really doesn't get involved in the level of protection we provide for them or whether we, we do or we don't. Sometimes it can get a little messy. Um, and I think I wrote about this actually in my book, so I could probably talk about that. I remember the deputy director traveling with a particular senator, and he, about halfway through the multiple country trip, started making decisions on where they were going to go next and changing the plans. Well, that, that messes us up a little bit because we have advanced teams in certain locations and we're making preparations, and if the senator is starting to make decisions on where he wants to go and take the deputy director. Well, that's, you know, could be some politics involved there. And I think in one particular site it was, he wanted to go down range to a, a particular AO that was uh, involved with um, a conflict and we were not prepared to take our guy there, but he wanted to go down and sometimes senators and staffs like to go get their five minutes of fame and photos and war area and get back on the plane and head out. So to your point, sometimes politics can play a role in how we might protect an individual in that. And in this particular case, uh, he fell under our protective umbrella because we're the team responsible for protecting the deputy director in this particular case. And when that happens, you know, while our, our deputy director was our primary protectee, because he's a higher ranking senator, we're also going to include him in that umbrella. So if he's making decisions for political reasons, it can definitely cause some problems. So, you know, for sure, I think books, you know, probably capture it pretty good sometimes. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a political field when you have uh, two or three different uh, powers that are, you know, for whatever the reason, they're motivated. And yes. Can that cause problems with protection? Sure, it can. Yeah. Well, more on your uh, personal experiences, you shared a little bit there. Is there a particular memorable moment, experience, or maybe a memorable individual that you had to protect that you are you're willing to talk about? You know, I, I do write about in books. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of stay true to what's in the book, and the reason I do that is the book had to had to be clear about the CIA, mm -hmm. uh, the CIA Publication Review Board. Uh, reviews all employees uh, manuscripts and uh, that was a, about an 18 month process for me so you, know, you try to stay within the lines and stay true to the uh, uh, the purpose behind the PRB so you know I'll, I'll stay close to the book but I did I did mention my wake-up call in the field of close protection was actually in Germany when I was in the Air Force and you may or may not be familiar with the case, but there was a, an attack by the Red Army faction when they assassinated um, Alfred Herrhausen. He was a German, high-level German banker. He had, um, you know, he had maybe ties with a group called the Bilderbergs and these sort of groups that have, uh, have always had a conspiracy of sort of dominant control over the world. I mean, you could 
you could write that into any book as well, uh, any James Bond movie probably. Um, but Harryhausen was, he was known to tell the Red Army faction, you're not going to kill me, you're not going to get me. I mean, he was um, um, a very high-powered um, individual. He was close to the, um, the Chancellor of Germany at the time as well. So again, we're talking before the fall of the Vietnam War, or fall of the, uh, uh, the Berlin Wall. So our principal, which we found out just weeks prior, uh, the German intelligence raided a safe house. And in the safe house, they found a list of individuals that the Red Army faction wanted to assassinate. Herrhausen was number one, and our principal was on that list. So now it becomes real. Uh, Red Army faction has a very successful history of assassinating and attacking individuals. Um, so it became very real for us. And we were on the road uh, the day that Herrhausen was assassinated. Uh, he was assassinated close to his home in, in uh, Frankfurt. We were a little further south, about an hour and a half. At that particular day, we were up close to where his house was, probably about 15 minutes when we were on the road and we got the call from our op center that Herrhausen had been attacked. Uh, his car actually hit a, uh, basically an IED, if you will, and uh, uh, it killed him. So that was kind of a wake up call for me that this job is for real. Yeah. Uh, and you don't always get to choose. In the case of IEDs, you don't always get to choose uh, when you get to fight. Uh, that can take you out of the fight real quick, as we've seen for the last 20 years uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, that's a very unfair advantage that an enemy has, and we've had to, you know, find ways to mitigate and work around that. Uh, but that's a hard one. Uh, a sniper's bullet, um, an explosion or a device parked near a location where they know you're going to travel, uh, that makes the advanced team work a lot harder to try to find that. And in this particular case, they missed it. Uh, there was plenty of signals that um, uh, that the Red Army faction had been working in this particular area, had been had been prepping it for this attack, and actually set a bicycle there for many, many days that nobody noticed. And then this one particular day, there was a satchel charge on the bicycle, mm. and uh, without going into a lot of details, uh, the uh, there was a an individual or small team there that let the first car go by. They um, ignited an IR beam. Um, and when the principal's car broke that IR beam, explosion, you know, plucking him out. So, again, getting, getting that phone call and saying, hey, it's for real. Harehouse uh, has been assassinated. We know our guys on the list. Uh, it, it suddenly gets very, very real. Yeah. You know, I have a question. I'm a middle school geography teacher. So as you were talking, I'm hearing about an IED in Germany, which sounds like to me, if it's before the, the fall of the wall, you know, in the 80s or so. Um, what role does, does different geographies play to that advanced team and the planning? Because I would have never considered that you were setting up that story to end with a, a roadside bomb, you know, an improvised device where I would certainly expect that in the other examples. I know you mentioned Afghanistan, Iraq. So what role does the geography and the development status of where your protectee is headed, how does that play into your planning? It plays a lot into it. And I, I think it goes back to any book or story. You have to know who your adversary is. Mm -hmm. If you have a principal who you know, you know, whether it's a, a terrorist organization that has made it known, 
that they're after your guy, well, then kind of all bets are off. Uh, they may be able to use about anything, uh, whether it's a whether it's a plutonium stick, you know, as you're walking down the sidewalk. Uh, you know, if their job is to, if their goal is to kill your principal, well, there's a lot of ways that can happen. Yeah. It could be IED. It could be vehicle attack. It could be a weapon attack. Uh, there's just, you know, they have the advantage. Yeah. Uh, and they can get it wrong 99% of the time. Well, we're only going to get it right once. So it's that one. That puts the pressure on a protected detail. You take this uh, attack in uh, Mexico with the chief of police. You know, they've probably driven that route many, many times. Uh, when you're in a vehicle and your arrivals and departures, that's kind of where you're the most vulnerable. It's where you're most predicted. So to your point, geographics, yes, does play a role into it. You know, that's why a lot of times we like to come in the back door of hotels and not the front door. Uh, we make sudden last minute changes to change our routes. Uh, we may use um, dummy motorcades to throw off somebody. So there's a lot of different things that we have to think through. And at the end of the day, if you think the the risk is that high, well, you may not travel anywhere. You, know, you may avoid that. So, yeah. You know, it's, uh, in this particular case, you're probably talking, um, you know, what we did know as terrorist organizations back then, even now, they, they tend to work together, they tend to support each other, and they learn from one another. And uh, The IED was something new to the RAF, and we think they probably spent some time with the East German Stasis, who were also spending time with Lebanese terrorist groups and Middle East terrorist groups that were a little more far advanced on using crude IED type of devices, and, uh, bringing it into a city, uh, in into a sort of a, a German community. Yeah, it doesn't, you know, until it happened, kind of like a 9-11, until it happens, you just don't think it'll happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, as we start wrapping up here, what is it like designing a detail around celebrities? And we have a world today where celebrities are perhaps more persuasive to the public, very often than politicians or academics or the quote smart people you know we might get some not very bright people but they have a whole lot of sway particularly you know among huge portions of the population everything they say everywhere they make an appearance could really be a huge statement so what is it like and actually mitch rap in case you haven't gotten to the most recent book i i recommend it if you do find some time it's it's called lethal agent raps in charge of one of these uh, a pop star you know a pop singer a teenager and he gets into a raucous, you know, event. He actually has to hit the guy, you know, because he's, he's being an ass. But um, what is it like uh, having to design a detail for celebrities and that cult of personality? Does that change anything? It changes a lot. It's probably one of the most difficult, I, I, I think. I That's not, as an EP agent or somebody in the security field, there are some people who can make that transition from corporate to government to private sector. I'll be the first one to say I would not transition well to that kind of role. Um, maybe because I'm getting a little older, maybe it's because my I grew up in more in a, in, a, in a defined role in terms of the military, the CIA or, or corporate. I had a, I worked for a, a high profile CEO for many years, but he was almost more like working for the director. He was very uh, well-mannered, if you will. Uh, so to work for a pop star celebrity, yes. I mean, they obviously, some of them need it, uh, either because of their personality or role, but it is different um, because you're working with so many people who are influencing them. 
and they have different, you know, it could be, I mean, a celebrity figure is only as popular and based on his celebrity or her celebrity status. So it's photo shoots, it's, it's arrivals, it's a big arrivals and it's, uh, uh, you know, sort of the paparazzi is a double edged sword for them. You know, they don't like them unless they need them. And if they need their photos to get out there, then paparazzi is their best friend. But if they're on vacation with their family or kids, they don't want anybody taking their pictures. But it's hard to have it both both ways. So when you're working with those kinds of characters, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely it. Um, even if you look at the industry, if you look at the bodyguard industry, you tend to see more of the bodyguard mentality, which is part of our protection skill set. Uh, but those individuals are trained differently because they're trained to work in that kind of environment where you have to not lose your patience when you have a lot of cameras around, when you have a lot of people. If I'm working for a protected detail for the president or, or CIA director, as an example, individuals like that get in our space, you're not going to like our response. Mm. So you have to have a different mentality. You have to have different tools. Uh, you have to have a, a proper demeanor. You got to know, you know, when to when to sort of take authority and maybe pull your principal out of a situation, even though they feel they're comfortable, or they have representatives around them that's making them do things that probably they shouldn't be doing it's for their own safety. So having that sort of authority and power, that that previous discussion with these principals, we call it a principal brief. We're going to explain to them how we're going to do our job things that we prefer they not do. And we kind of choreograph and talk about this prior to that. So that discussion is definitely going to be a lot different with a celebrity than it would be with an executive or uh, somebody from the government. I couldn't do it, I'll be honest. uh, It would not be my favorite uh, type of principle. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, don't worry, because Mitch Rapp couldn't do it either. He got hired for the side job and it was just some punk teenager and he, he made a point very clearly that he wasn't having it. So uh, yeah, I could see that being a whole different, different animal to work with. Well, thanks so much for coming on and shedding some light about this field. You know, a field that very often is represented in the Mitch Rapp books. Uh, I hope you get to uh, get back to reading some of them uh, if you ever find some time, but to wrap up, how can the listeners find you and uh, find your book maybe online? You have a website. Is that right? I do. The book has a website. It's under uh, theprotected.us. The book is on Amazon or any of the other online uh, book outlets, if you will. Uh, But the easiest way, if if you go to theprotected.us, it it has links to the book. So it's an easy find there. Great. Uh, Well, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. And um, let me know if you ever get to read any Mitch Rapp books again. Like I'm looking forward to that day to slowing down where I can spend more time reading those books. Absolutely. It'll come. It'll come. <laughs> the whole, uh, the whole series of those books and the way that the, all the writers have captured the same story theme is just uh, very powerful. Really, really nice. Job. And actually being in the industry from like one to 10, how, how um, accurate are they? Cause I look at some books I read or some movies and it's obviously a zero. It's not even hitting the mark. I get the sense with no military experience, I still get the sense that 
how this is written in the research is somewhere in that high level, you know, like seven, eight or so out of 10 or higher of getting it right mostly besides the fantastical elements. Would I, am I off? Is it, is it generally well-researched, these kinds of stories? Right. Vince did a really good job of that. And I think if he yeah. started out that way, um, so whether you're a, a Brad Thor or Tom Clancy, these guys all do a tremendous amount of research. Yeah. And when you're not from the organizations and you're not, you don't have to go through the review process and you have a little more liberty to be very close to the truth. Those writers who have done the right research, and I can guarantee you, Vince or Kyle, these guys all have a short list of people they sit down and have drinks with and uh, make trips and see operations and, you know, have sort of really in-depth conversations. Their writing is going to be much more accurate and you can tell. So no, you're right. His books are, you know, you're probably up there in the seven, seven to eight area. You know, it's interesting. I learned even the reverse about this. I, I heard that particularly uh, post 9-11, there was big talk that we weren't being creative enough in how we analyzed threats and categorized them. And so I heard there were a team of fiction writers. And I don't know exactly who was brought in, but I wouldn't be surprised if a Vince or a, a Brad Thor or even, you know, Tom Clancy to have that more creative edge to kind of propose solutions that are outside the box. So it's kind of like the two can complement each other. You know, fiction can often enhance the imagination. And as we know, our enemy has quite an imagination with some of the things they plan and do. So maybe not a bad idea for authors and uh, the Hollywood type to kind of do a give and take with the professionals in the field. A hundred percent. And I think all oh, that does occur because I know organizations within the military and the government are always looking to, draft um, events that may occur. And if they may occur, it means you have to use imagination to come up with that storyline. Uh, so for sure, there's probably some really, really great books sitting in the archives of the, of the Defense Department of CIA that you could take out that never really happened, but it was a story written to be prepared for. Um, that could be a good book. Uh, and actually, the CIA kind of did that back in the... 90s, and they had a, a, a very senior officer by the name of Chase Brandon, what a great name is that, uh, I think it was actually under George Tennant, assigned Chase to be Hollywood's representative. Oh, wow. Help them bring some reality to their movies and kind of not make every CIA movie about a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Bring some good stuff to it. And I think Brandon's first uh, series that he was an advisor on was Alias. Oh, okay. And so that had a lot of um, sort of CIA cracked the door open a little bit for that series. And then I think you saw other movies and series follow that time period in the late 90s, early 2000, using that sort of conduit between the CIA and, and different, uh, different writers and different movies to bring a little more realism to the uh, topics. So, yeah, you're right. Well, that's great to hear. Again, thank you so much. Really appreciate you finding the time to come on. And to our listeners, check out theprotected.us and look at some of uh, Michael's work in the field of security. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. All right. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Mike. And so next time, we'll be coming at you with our first part of Executive Power, breaking down the first half of the book. So look out for that. Read up if you want to. 
Uh, we want to take this time to thank our patrons, including our special operator, Sherry F., and our special agents, Matt, Don, Dennis, Roman, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, and Jeff. Please subscribe, rate, and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. And you can find us online at mitrappod.com or using our Twitter handle, at mitrappod. And what do, we, what do we have to do, Mike? We should just let Mitch be Mitch. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster, but thank you to them for bringing us the wonderful world of rap. And the music soundtrack is Guerrilla Tactics by Raphael Crooks.